Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight, once again, is our founding father, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Rob. How you doing? Not bad. Uh, hanging in there by thread, but uh, my good pal, Old Fashioned, is uh, going to help me get through today. <laughs> yeah, I just have a Coke here, but someone doctor's orders to avoid the booze. Oh, man, that sucks. You have no idea. Yeah, it sounds pretty terrible. I was wondering why you're so discombobulated, but that explains <laughs> it. Well, there are a number of reasons you're discombobulated. The lack of a gin and tonic right now is one of them. Uh, also with us tonight from Longbow Games, we have programmer and designer Rick Jorgensen. Rick, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. So Rick is here to talk with us a bit about Hegemony, Philip of Macedon, and the gold edition of the game. Uh, this is something that Troy, you know, clued me into some time ago, but I haven't had a chance to... Uh, play it until recently, and I didn't feel comfortable doing a show on it until I'd been able to spend some time with it. I don't know what took me so long, because this is one of my favorite periods in history, and I have to say, my initial impressions of Hegemony are incredibly positive. They really capture a lot of things I love about the period. Uh, so, Rick, before we, before we get into the game itself, I'd love to hear a bit about the or, the origins of, of this game. What uh, where did the, How did this project come about? Yeah, okay, so the original, uh, the original game was obviously about Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, um, who kind of created the army and everything that Alexander later used to conquer half the known world at the time. But Philip wasn't ever really uh, anywhere near as well-known a figure as Alexander was. So a lot of people ask, why Philip? Why not his son? But uh, our lead designer had actually started researching Alexander about uh, 10 years before we started on the project. And as he started researching into him, he realized that Philip was really a much more interesting character because he started with nothing and virtually ended up conquering and uniting all of ancient Greece. So we had uh, worked on that for a while, and uh, after it was released, we really wanted to add more campaigns to the map, but right. still keeping it with the same map of ancient Greece that we had when we developed Philip. So then we decided to do this uh, gold edition and focus on uh, the Peloponnesian Wars. So Athens, Sparta, they fight. It's great. Right, now, so going back to, uh, going back to the decision to focus more, uh, more on Philip... You know, just just as a history guy, I'm I'm interested in the logic behind that decision because Alexander seems to me to be a really divisive figure. You know, I was a, I was a classics major, and a lot of us fell into two camps on Alexander. There were, there were people who just absolutely adored him, thought he was thought he was a genius, thought he was a great empire builder, and the rest of us, uh, well, I mean, I'm giving my position away here, uh, <laughs> thought he was kind of a son of a bitch. Um, yeah, and I imagine a number of people would agree with both sides of that. Um, for us, the one of the biggest reasons that we chose to go with Philip is because if you look at Alexander's campaign, it's a lot of these little sort of points of light. You know, he had a lot of battles that were separated by a whole lot of space, which right. really didn't work very well for the kind of game we were making, um, where it's we wanted to have this one seamless map um, where you start out with one city and you've got no load screens after that. You just keep expanding out farther and farther. And if we wanted to do Alexander's campaign, it really wouldn't have worked that well. Right. The, the seamless map was, was one of the big surprises. So you, you, 
went into this project, the the, the seamless map idea uh, for the design that was already that was already decided upon in advance of what sort of t- what topic you're going to be hitting. Uh, it happened really early on, actually, when we originally started developing the game. It was originally going to be a 2D uh, grid-based game, but uh, this was about a year before I started working at Longbow, and uh, Rob was the only programmer at the time, and he convinced Jim, our lead pro- or our lead designer, that, hey, 3D would be a lot of fun. Um, so they had spent a few months doing it in 2D, and at that point they had already decided it was going to be about Philip, but once uh, they came up with the idea of doing a... Uh, seamless map things really started to gel as a cohesive idea well i mean this is uh philip macedon so hegemony uh, philip macedon hegemony golder i mean they're two of my favorite games for the last 12 months I and mean, i think it's i've said this before i've said it in the blog and i've said it to friends i think it's one of the most innovative uh real-time strategy games to come along in a very long time um and how it uses space and how it uses resources now i've written a long series of essays about maps and geography and how games understand and use space. And one of the great things about Hegemony is how it conceives of space, not just the the map, but how the terrain works and how the terrain interacts with the troops and how if they have land and navy and all of this resource point stuff going on and it expands and expands. Uh, could you uh, start by explaining how because you said Alexander doesn't work, it's just too damn big. But, I mean, this is not a small game, because you start small, but it gets to be a pretty large and almost unmanageable map at a certain point. You really have to build up in skill before you have, because you'll have invasions all over the place. It takes a lot of work to understand that space. So could you uh, say a little bit about how the team, how the programming and the coding and the game design works with this conception of space and maps? I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, well, it wasn't actually the uh, the size of the map so much that was the problem with Alexander's campaign. It was more the right. density of the map. Um, right. If you were to run through Alexander's campaign, there would have been a whole lot of walking in between cities with nothing happening in between. Whereas with uh, Ancient Greece, where you... have cities, states, and armies yeah. all over the place, right? Um, especially in the original uh, Philip of Macedon, we found that... Mm-hmm. Uh, the game was evolving as we were programming it, and one of the things we found is it's really important to keep your uh, borders uh, really locked down tight. Um, and don't go into a battle unless you know that you can win it. But uh, that is something that we had improved upon in the Gold Edition. We created a new, um, a new system for using recruits, which really makes the outcome of the battles a lot more meaningful. Um, but as far as the uh, using the space of the map, um, most of it had actually come down to uh, just plotting in the historical locations. Um, we'd actually started out with NASA's satellite dem data of ancient Greece, well, of mm-hmm. all the Earth, but we had selected the uh, portion of ancient Greece and just pouring through um, ancient atlases and finding all of the uh, historical sites. Um, so a lot of that was just sort of, you know, our good luck that everything uh, turned out to be interesting as it as it actually feels when you read through the history books. 
Right. One of the things that really impress impresses me about hegemony is, you know, there it's there there are a lot of really difficult situations I, I find myself in, but they but they all stem from the way these what is it? It's just like three resources interacting in the game. It's you know what what I've spent most of my time worrying about. There's there's food, there's gold, mm -hmm. and there's recruits. Yep. And it's it's absolutely simple it takes it took me no time at all all i had to do is you know play the tutorial to to figure it out uh, which is a nice change of pace from a lot of the games i've been playing lately um but what, what's really impressed me is just using those just using those three resources i have had so many different you know scenarios sort of play out from the way they interact with each other yeah the game was originally um going to focus primarily on combat, but one of the things we decided early on is that we really wanted to uh, focus on the historical importance of supply, because obviously an army marches on its stomach. If you can't feed it, then its morale is going to drop and it's going to rout on you. Um, so we ended up coming up with this system where you uh, build supply lines between all your cities and farms, and you can actually block off supply lines and starve out cities. Uh, and sort of recreate the ancient sieges that had happened historically. Go ahead. I mean, um, I, I have so many things I want to talk about, and I, I don't know where to start, because it really is, I mean, it's one of my favorite games. I really love how much, uh, how true it is to the period and how it understands the period. Um, I want to get to this supply thing, especially. Uh, it's a battle about, you know, it's about cutting off supply lines. It's about mobility. It's not really about the battles, but, you know, there are a lot of battles. Um, you know, if you go through um, if you go through your ancient history books, you don't even the Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War wasn't full of a bunch of hoplite battles. I mean, generally there were some sieges and some skirmishes, and every now and then, maybe like once a year, you'd have a big hoplite battle, and it's a lot of moving around and waiting. But you know, the, the game really can't have that. You can't have a game where there's not a lot of battles. You have to have the battles, but you have to have all this other stuff too. So, how do you get the balance of first capturing? the importance of the supply lines, but also giving the player something to do with his troops. Because you want to have sieges, but you don't want to have the armies just sitting around standing outside a wall, which is historically what they may have done, but, you know, people want to see their horses run into the back of the hoplites, and they want to see the slingers uh, do their damage, because, you know, that's why you buy the game. Um, so as a game designer who is, and a game design team who has, you know, worked really hard to keep together the historical fidelity here, I mean, they've through the missions and the choice of city-states and the importance of naval mobility and importance of supply, what's the proper balance of, okay, we need to have more of this and less of that in game design? I'm not one of these historical accuracy purists. I like to have, but I like to, I like to know where the designers make that choice. Yeah, it's always um, a tough trade-off because sometimes what had happened historically really doesn't mesh well with the game design. Um, and that always happens with every aspect of the game. It's come up a lot in the art as well. Um, one of the most notable uh, compromises we had to make is on top of your city walls, we've got uh, catapults, which shoot at the guys as they come up. And that is not historically accurate at all. Nope. <laughs> um, but we really needed to have something to show the player that the cities were defending themselves. And that happened... Um, it happened in more places than I'd like to admit, but hopefully the players don't notice it because we've tried to uh, hide it behind the design but uh, and make up for it by uh, filling in all the other gaps with a lot of historical accuracy. 
Um, so as far as the uh, balance between having your troops sitting around and having them go into combat, um, a lot of that is because the map is so big, um, you might find yourself doing multiple things at once. So yeah, you might have one um, brigade which is just on a boat and sailing across the sea and they're doing that for half an hour, but you've got other guys doing other things on other parts of the map. Um, and that's sort of where you get a lot of the tension in the game, is managing um, different things happening on different parts of the map. So when, when did the decision to make it real-time come in? I think that's actually a very important decision in how the game's played. You could, I could look at this and see it as a turn-based game you know, pretty easily, like a Total War turn-based campaign, and then you just have the battles go in real-time. It would be you know, an easy design decision to make, but you did the whole thing in real-time. Um, which involved a lot of juggling in places. Some of the improvements in the gold version helped a lot with that, but you still have a lot of balls up in the air. Um, when did the decision to make real-time come in? Was that an early choice? Because it was a, a grid-based game to begin with. Was there ever a turn-based version of this? Uh, it evolved quite a bit. Um, we had played around with a lot of different um, navigation techniques for uh, the troops pathfinding across the terrain. And the earlier attempts had lent themselves uh, better to turn-based. But over time, um, we had ended up coming up with a system which really showed the uh, movement of the troops in a much more realistic way than what we had started out with. And it just happened to be a system which worked better in real time. But we didn't want to give up all of the uh, thoughtfulness that you get with typical turn-based games. Um, so even though we had this nice flexible system that you get in a real-time game, we still wanted to make sure the player was able to think about their moves. So we added the uh, pause system where you can pause the game, issue all your orders in pause time, and as soon as you unpause the game, your troops execute those orders. Yeah, so I, w I wanted to circle back on historical accuracy for just, for just a minute because I know that's a sticking point for a lot of people. And, I mean, try, you know... The things like the, the catapults on the walls, and Troy, I'm sure you noticed that there's a lot of maneuver in these battles that perhaps wasn't really the way hoplite warfare tended to work. Uh, but, but at the same time, though, I think there's, you know, I think if you zoom out a little bit and, and don't focus quite on that minutia, there's a great deal of historically accurate feel to this game. You know, it's, it's one of these things where there's a lot of small things you can say, well, that, you know, that doesn't really add up to what we read about in the history books. But I think if you take the game as a whole, you end up with, you know, a very nice flow that that certainly feels authentic. I mean, this is something that I come back to when I talk about historical ac historical accuracy in games and movies. It's there, There's accuracy and there's truth. And you can have all the... It can be perfectly accurate, but still feel completely wrong because it cap because it's just so focused on the accuracy that the sum of the parts doesn't capture anything important about the historical moment. Um, I, I always use the movie Spartacus as my example. Historically inaccurate, you know, up the ad is the, one of the least historically accurate movies you could ever imagine. I mean, Spartacus is terrible as far as accuracy is concerned, but it captures something true. It captures the truth of an ancient slave economy. It captures the truth of Rome's transition from a republic to a government run by, by generals. Even though, no, historically, Crassus doesn't become dictator. That never happens. But it captures an historical truth. It's a movie that has a lot of truth and very little accuracy. I think, 
hegemony has a lot of accuracy, but it's not perfect accuracy. But it captures a lot of truth about um, the difficulties and the challenges of first uniting Greece to begin with, uh, which was, you know, which Philip did, you know, at, at, pretty much with, with his boot, because he wasn't exactly a smooth talker. Um, and he's the first guy who actually, who actually did that. I mean, people felt like he was the first one ever tried, but he, was, he did it, and he wasn't even a Greek, really. He just came down from the north, a barbarian, a Hellenized barbarian, and comes down, but didn't play by the rules that the Athenians and Spartans did. Then you have the Peloponnesian War, and you have, you know, this great, amazing challenge of two superpowers with very, very different strengths. And I think Hegemony Gold captures that beautifully without being perfectly historically accurate. And I think that's what a great historical game should be about. And that's why I think Hegemony is probably the best historical game. I just wrote a, an essay on uh, Greeks, uh, ancient Greeks uh, in national character in strategy games. And I said hegemony is the only game that really captures Greek history really well, that really understands Greek history. Um, and then I went off a Greek myth. Uh, well, Go ahead. Just to jump in there, I think, you know, the decision to make it real time, I think, is a fundamental component of the way it captures truths about this era. Because even though it's plausible, there is still a lot for you to take in. You know, there's still a lot to keep track of. And it very quickly becomes, it becomes difficult, not impossible. But one of the things I find happening over and over again is that I will become aware that something is going wrong in some far-flung corner of my little empire while I've been fixated on, you know, campaigning elsewhere. And now what I probably could have nipped in the bud if I just noticed it happening sooner has metastasized into a complete you know, collapse in some sort of distant front. And once again, I mean, there's a tendency, I think, in a lot of strategy games where things just become a little too tidy. Uh, you know, the game, is, the game is frozen until you hit end turn. You can do that final check to make sure everything is going exactly the way you want it to. All your orders are queued up. And that is that is a lie when you're talking about you know mo, you know most imperial management. That's why so few of these games actually ring true. But this one absolutely does because you think you know you do check. You think everything's running, you know everything's running smoothly. You go and focus on a problem, and the moment the game starts running again, something else goes wrong. Yeah, that's uh, that's one thing that we focused on for quite a while. Is we didn't want it to get to the point where. Um, everything is running perfectly smoothly and you don't have to worry about anything. You've kind of got uh, this perfect system down where nobody can get at you. Um, but at the same time, we still needed to make sure the player had some breaks in between the onslaughts. Um, and we ended up coming up with a system which pretty much models exactly that, where we'll let you have some uh, some time to yourself to work out everything but after a while, people are going to come for you. One of, one of the other ways you seem, to, you seem to get a lot of action into the game is that the focus on supply, you know, it, it, really, it, really, it really functions quite ingeniously to create a lot of small-scale conflicts to keep you busy. It's not just about, you know, epic sieges of, of major cities. A lot of the game is spent harassing and reconnoitering and, fig, you know, Figuring out the best way to open up a important, you know, valley for the taking. 
Yeah, in some ways it'll act as sort of an early warning system where you see uh, some raiders coming in and they've started burning your crops or something. And on the other hand, you'll also have some cities, because especially in the Philip of Mastodon campaign, Philip was conquering a lot of cities that didn't necessarily want to be conquered. So you have to keep those people happy, otherwise they'll rebel on you. Um, and that was sort of an interesting uh, decision that we made regarding the walls of your cities is for most games it's kind of obvious you build walls it makes them more secure but in this case because you're conquering these cities if you allow them to keep their walls then they're going to feel more feel more secure and they're going to be more likely to rebel on you so something that philip had actually done is he had torn down a lot of walls as he had conquered cities uh, so that if they ever did try to rebel, he could recapture them right away. Oh, and I absolutely loved that detail because, you know, I mean, one of the stories of the decline of the Athenian Empire is time and again they, you know, for they, they make an alliance of convenience. They help fortify the living hell out of an important site. And then the people who live there turn on them. I think most, most famously, you know, their, their brief and disastrous alliance with uh, Megara uh, in the... In, you know the the pre Peloponnesian War period, but yeah, it's it, it was it's such a great detail because it's once once again it's it, it's a little more elegant than just like having a loyalty meter. It become it becomes more of an issue of you know balancing the need to protect your holdings against your your ability to threaten them. You know your your ability to threaten your neighbor, to threaten your you know to threaten your uh, population is yet another is a big factor in how you construct your empire in this game. I mean, yeah, it's one of these different, one of these great choices, one of the great decision points in the game is, you know, the, cause your natural instinct is cause we've been trained by strategies have been trained. Walls are good. You build a wall around your city cause that protects it from invasion. It makes it secure, makes it strong. But if the walls are turned against you, then that slows you down. Uh, so there's this sense that it's a choice. Do I trust this city? Can I trust this city? Do I protect it? Or uh, are, the, are these walls going to protect the city for me or protect the city against me? Um, and it's a decision you'll be making constantly through the game. And uh, it's full of these. This is one of the great things about hegemony uh, as a design is you can't, everything is coming at you, but you can't do everything. Your armies can't be everywhere at once. You'll never have a whole bunch of little... It's not like, you know, Europa Universalis. You can have a bunch of little small armies all over the place and they can mobilize and put out rebellions pretty damn quickly because, you know, the rebellions can get it a hand pretty quick and they can knock out your economy and they can, you know, capture all your slaves and, you know, it can be a real, real mess if you don't play it smartly or wisely. And I love how these uh, decisions are tied in. Uh, these strategic decisions are kind of turned on their head because they aren't always obvious. And I think the wall one is a great example of that. Um, I want to, I mean, this is something that Rob mentioned in passing, but I can't let this escape because along with uh, maps, one of my big things, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about reviewing games, is tutorials. Uh, and uh, tutorials suck generally. <laughs> but as a reviewer, uh, when I was a journalist, I always played the tutorial because you know, even if I knew the genre really well, I wanted to see how is this game being taught to me. And one of the great things about hegemony, I'm thinking uh, my first experiences of it with uh, Philip of Macedon, is how 
It's this whole mission-based system which serves as a tutorial but is completely integrated with the main campaign and you're learning stuff without even knowing you're learning it. Um, it is so elegant and beautiful and smooth and it's not like uh, you look at the Total War games, it's, here's a campaign, it's like 10 turns long, you play it, we'll teach you five things and have fun. And that's so, you're, you guys didn't go that way, you went with this total integration model, uh, which is kind of daring and, because you can learn at your own pace. Um, it's not really rushing you through, so when did that come along? What, what, is your, what are the strengths and weaknesses of your tutorial? Because I'm sure you think it could be a lot better than it is. Uh, well, yeah, everything in the game. I'm obviously very proud of the game, but at the same time, I am never satisfied with what we do. I always want to think about what we can improve, and uh, I'm really excited about the game that we're working on right now, which we haven't announced yet. But uh, one of the things, the tutorial was actually a big sticking point in the office for months on end. Um, we did have more traditional uh, tutorials to start out with, but this is something that... Um, that simpler games like uh, first-person shooters have really figured out how to do much better, um, where they really integrate the tutorials with the main gameplay so that you don't actually realize you're learning how to play the game. Uh, it just sort of happens. A game like Portal, you know, 90% of the game is tutorials. But with strategy games, usually they're so much more complicated that it's so much more difficult to integrate the tutorials. Um, and we did end up uh, improving it slightly in the Gold Edition. We added a few more quests to the Philip campaign to teach you some of the stuff that we didn't think we did a perfectly good job on the original game. But uh, mm -hmm. basically we wanted to be able to... The only thing we figured the player needed to learn how to do right away was how to control the camera and how to issue orders to their troops. After that, we just introduced them to the uh, quest system, and then as you go through these quests, they teach you, um, even though you're not realizing that it's teaching you this, but they teach you how to play the game and how to use all the different uh, aspects of the strategy of the game. One of the things I really loved about the tutorial, and it's, it's not even a lesson really that's built into the tutorial, but it, it sort of happens along the way, at least it, this is how it worked for me, and I'd, I'd be curious if you fell into this trap too, Troy. Uh, the Oh, I fell into so many traps. The very, the very beginning of the Philip campaign starts very easy. And I, I totally felt secure that I was in typical strategy tutorial land where, you know, basically it was just, you know, going to be one win after another until the game eventually decided that I could stand on my own two feet. So I was just kind of going through the quest chain and, you know, ordering my armies around willy-nilly. And what I didn't pay any attention to because the tutorial only briefly touched on it, was my reserve of recruitable troops in my towns. So I start fighting all these sort of haphazard battles, just throwing my troops at you know enemy formations, breaking them, sieging cities, then on to the next thing. And you know as I as I moved into you know the the next Macedonian territory, it's a this large western valley. As I moved into that, I ran into my first real stiff resistance, and my armies got just decimated. No problem, you know, I'll just rebuild them. And that's when the ground gave way underneath me, uh, because I couldn't. There were the, the way recruits work in this game is that they're absolutely finite, and they're slow to replenish. 
And so without without ever having, you know, here's here's how troop recruitment works, you know, here's here's what you need to be aware of. It the the Philip sort of the, the game gave me enough rope to hang myself with. And through my failure, and it was, you know, sort of set up for this kind of failure, but through my failure, I absolutely learned everything about how managing armies and, you know, the importance of casualties. I learned all of these things in one fell swoop because I was free to go and screw up gloriously. Yeah, that that Western push into, you know, uh, Paeonia and Illyria, that's just... That, that that's killer, dude. I mean, there's, I had that. That's where I've run into my problems too. Is that they're they're far away from your recruitment centers, so you've got an army annihilated by rebels there. If you don't have the troops already, you, they'll be swarming you and taking back their cities and burning your farms and cutting off your supply lines. And just as I was, you know, getting them back, the Athenian side. Yep, didn't know that was didn't know that was coming. Yep, hi Athens, you know, sail some triremes up and land some raiding parties, not to take cities, just to burn my shit. And you know, this was something you know you don't usually see in a strategy game. You know, actual raiding. Uh, there wasn't this sense that they were coming to take and hold territory that they couldn't hold it. They were just going to come, and you know, take some of my guys, kill some soldiers take some citizens off to be sold in the slave markets of Rhodes or something, um, and burn my crops, uh, which is such a, once again, a great historical thing. The idea of you when, you know, the Spartans marched on Athens and the Athenians ran behind the walls, the Spartans didn't just sit there. They just burned all the fields and burned all the vineyards because that's what you do. That's what armies do, and that's what armies did um, because supply is so important. And if you don't have the supply, it's there. And even to, just to see that, to see uh, armies moving up and just destroying land, just destroying resources and then getting out of there. And they keep coming back. I mean, that was the thing. They didn't, keep, didn't change their raiding territory. They kept coming back to the same spot, uh, which, you know, would have been a stupid move. I could have fought them with anything, but I didn't have anything left. I wasn't able to build boats yet because the tutorial hadn't gotten me that far ahead. Um, but it was... I was the same thing, that the Paeonians, Paeonians are just bitches. That's just, there's no other way to put it. I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was the, that, that's, the, that's where you hit the point where, okay, you think you're so smart, let's give you a bunch of guys who don't want to be in your empire. You may think they're barbarians, their cities are pretty spread apart, so you can't just run around and knock them down. Um, and that's where you learn some, and they're, but they're rich, there's a lot of resources there, so you want to hold them. And that's where you get your real taste, first taste of imperial management. This isn't just a build army, take city. This is an imperial management game in real time. And I think having that as a wake-up call built into the tutorial, intentionally built into the tutorial, you know, maybe there's some smart guys out there who really cruise through that the first time through. They're all liars if they say that. I say, I think that, you know, if you hit once you hit there your first time through, I think now I could do it, and I would know what I've been doing, but... I, th- I thought that was, was that intentional? Was that supposed to be a wake-up call? Or is that just, well, we should have designed that better and it shouldn't have been such a pain in the ass and we're sorry and here are your phalanxes back. <laughs> um, uh, yes and no. We did always try to design the game so that if, uh, if you make a mistake, you can always uh, crawl back to your home cities and um, sort of cut back on your expansion and wait for things to... Uh, to cool down. You never actually have to restart the game. Um, <clears throat> but 
But at the same time, if you did make a mistake, we wanted the player to sometimes think, oh, okay, well, that was a bad idea. Maybe I should just let that city go and um, fortify, you know, these um, points that I can defend more easily. Um, if you took a city and it was a hard city to defend without taking other cities around, then maybe it's you should just cut your losses and wait until you're stronger before trying to take it again. Um, and there's a lot of points throughout the game where you sort of have these aha moments, like, ah, I made a mistake the first time, but now I know how to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, this is was one of the virtues of real-time games, um, is you're a, a lot less likely to just quit and reload in these long-scale real-time games. Now, except for Europa Universalis, which I've said before in the podcast, I always declare my wars on in in, in, in January or, or February <laughs> because it, it, it had just auto-saved. Uh. So it's you know it's it's okay to start a war because you know if it goes really bad I just go back to the autosave which is a terrible thing to do and it's a terrible thing to admit uh, but you know I'm sometimes I don't want to you know lose the Ukraine to the Crimeans sometimes I actually want to just uh, mow things down uh, but this is a game uh, hegemony is a game that you know lets you it gives you breathing space to recoup uh, to rethink to replan because the AI is under, you know, the same pressures as you are. It, it is under supply constraints. Uh, so it can't just steamroll over you because it wants to get its act together before it starts moving forward. So you do have time uh, to think about what you've done. Um, no one's going to come and conquer Philip because he's the star, but at least, you know, they're, they're going to get ready and then they're not going to just go crazy and rampage, as Alexander would have done because... He was a nut bar, but you know. Otherwise, um, yeah, the, the game is paced with continual play in mind, and I really love how that works so smoothly. Yeah, it was actually a really important point for us throughout a large portion of developing the game. Is um, we wanted to make sure that the player never felt this need to reload the game, and they could always recover. And in some ways, we were actually too forgiving in the original game that way. Um, mm -hmm. We made it so that if you lost your guys, then they went back home and you could uh, re-recruit them almost immediately. But the problem is, is because we were giving the AI the same rules as the player, the AI could do the same thing. If you go up and you could uh, almost defeat the AI, but not quite succeed, then uh, all your guys go back to their home cities and the AI city uh, regenerates more quickly than... Uh, than it takes for you to bring uh, reserves in to finish the job. Um, so that's why we added the new recruit system to Hegemony Gold, is um, not so much to limit the player, but to limit the AI. So that way, if uh, it does give you more time to figure out how to fix a problem, which is sort of in the middle of brewing, now, does the AI ever have, like, a shoot-to-kill mode where it stops sort of... It, it does sort of seem like there's certain lines that it won't cross. There's certain... There, you know, it's it doesn't... You know, certainly in the Philip campaign, it's not going to make a strong assault on the Macedonian homeland, at least as far as I can tell. Um, I, I certainly felt a little more beset playing as Athens. I definitely felt like that was something I could really screw up. Uh, but is, th is that is that accurate? I mean, are there times when the when the AI is just going to say, well, you know, 
time time to close out the player. Well, a lot of times the AI was designed not so much to uh, to defeat the player in any possible way, but to recreate uh, some of the actions that had happened historically. So, if you conquer a faction's city, then that faction will be more likely to try to recover it. Um, and they do have a built-in. Uh, this is sort of behind the scenes. They do have a built-in timer where they'll come in and raid your uh, crops. Um, so that's... It was sort of the way that we got the ebb and flow of the game is if if you've had things too easy for too long, then we will throw some more guys at you. Um, but if things have been tough for you, then we might give you a bit more breathing room. I want to talk a bit about the art because um, one of the things that helped me sell this game to Bill Abner, I mean, I was, if you look for, you know, game site reviews of Hegemony, I think there are like two, and mine is one of them, uh, for, for, for GameShark last year. And one of the things that sold it is that I got to review this game, and I'll show you why, is um, the, the big zoom with all the little plastic board game pieces on this parchment map. And it's like, okay, this is a, first, it's a smooth, perfect zoom. And second, that's just way cool. I mean, this isn't some satellite map with NATO icons. This is, this is a board game. These are, this, it's a beautiful, and you can play on it. You can actually move your guys as you do this. And it's just, it blew my mind uh, to play at that level. And it's just so amazing and beautiful. I mean, whose idea was that? Can I get their name and send them a card? <laughs> um, I don't remember whose idea that was. I'm pretty sure that was... Um, a culmination of a number of uh, problems that we were facing that we had to come up with solutions for. So the um, first thing that we noticed is in the earlier builds of the game, when you had zoomed out too far and it was trying to show all those, all that terrain and all those troops, then the uh, the engine would start to chug a little bit. And it's something that we could have fixed if we spent more time on it. But we also started running into other problems, like when you zoom out too far, it's too hard to see your guys. Um, it's too hard to control your guys because they're these little ants running around on the map. Um, so we needed um, we needed to somehow scale the map while still keeping it in character. Um, and we really didn't feel like adding a whole lot of icons. Uh, we felt like that would remove a lot of your immersion. Um, and we... One of the things we tried to stay away from is just adding um, icons and numbers all over the place. So, whenever possible, we always tried to find an in-game parallel that we could use instead of just throwing more icons and numbers on the screen. And that was definitely something that inspired the, uh, the parchment map. I just find it interesting. I'm, I'm trying to work out the chronology on this. Troy, do you remember, did, did Hegemony and Ruse come out within like six months of each other? Thereabouts? Hegemony was in March, and I think Ruse September, was the fall. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it, it seems really interesting to me that... I, I would say, I mean, they're very, they're very similar uses of camera at the very least, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think they're, I think they have, they both have, I think, yeah, I think that's a fair comparison. Yeah, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting that the, these two games sort of cropped up in the same year using these really, you know, brilliant control and camera mechanics. And they would have been in development at the, yeah. the, they would have been in development like, at the same time. I guess time. it was yeah. an idea of whose time had come. Well, I don't know, there, there's one last thing I wanted to, I wanted to circle back on with, uh, you know, things that, things this game illustrates. 
you know one one of the one of the interesting things for me in this game is sort of the search for a uh, defense for an easily defensible border uh, seems really kind of a, a vain quest, but I keep I keep trying. Uh, but I, I I really enjoy how this game sort of encourages imperial overreach by there's there's always some sort of unexplored territory where raiders are coming from to to harass you. And inevitably, I, I get fed up, and I'm like, you know, screw it. I'm going. I'm I'm going to that valley. I'm going to root root those guys out. I'm going to I'm going to take them out, and that's you know that'll be that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I, I always envision that the next valley is some sort of like perfect box canyon where I can <laughs> you know like all right now we're done. But uh, you know, w- one of the things that that you know ends up happening in this game is that process. The bigger your borders get, that process now you know. You know, now instead of just dealing with one problematic territory, now you're dealing with four, and then you're dealing with eight. And there, there's real, uh, again, like in terms of like traps set for the traps set for players. There's definitely this. The the game is always sort of like dangling this carrot in front of you, saying, you know, well maybe maybe this next city will be the last one. You know, maybe maybe this will make the Illyrians leave you alone. Uh, and and of course it never does. It always gets you deeper deeper into the mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another sort of aha moment that a lot of the players have is they kind of realize that, well, maybe I should just hold back and keep this easily defensible position. They'll keep throwing guys at me, but as long as I can take care of them, then uh, it's better to hold a strong point than to try to eradicate them because I can't eradicate them. They've got cities all over the place. Um, And another thing that people eventually realize is if you start probing these little attacks out against, you know, five different factions at once, then you'll have five different factions who are pissed off at you at once. Um, so often it makes more sense to sort of focus on one faction at a time while just locking down your other borders. Right. Now, Troy, you mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the reasons mm-hmm. the walls thing works so well is because it sort of plays on our expectations. And I think there's there's a lot of that there's a lot of that in this game where Hegemony doesn't really, it certainly doesn't feel to me like it gives me a lot of the things that a lot of other empire builders have taught me to expect. You know, the, the you know, quest for defensible borders being sort of a quixotic one, sort of the holy grail, I guess. Um, you know, as one such example, you know, as strategy gamers, I think we're all conditioned, right? We, we, see, we seek out, like, you know, comprehensive solutions to problems. You know, we're going. You know, you don't want to deal with something over and over again. You want to fix it. You want to solve it, and then you want to move on so you can expand your empire. Uh, right. Also, there's you know another thread that runs through a lot of uh, a lot of empire builders is sort of this this idea of like omnicompetence. Uh, you know, for, for your empire, for your cities, where if you just you know if you if you're if you're a good manager, eventually, you know, you, if you tend your little plot of land, it will eventually you know, grow into a rich, productive powerhouse from which you can sort of conquer the world. And hegemony, hegemony really doesn't give you any of that. Yeah, that's often a really big argument in the office, actually, is we've got a complex game as it is, um, so do we give the player some things that they're comfortable with and that they've already learned in other games, or do we try to add one more thing which kind of tries to push the boundaries and... um, make the player think in different ways than they're used to. Um, it's That's always been a really tough trade-off for us, because we like trying different things. Um, 
but in a lot of ways it is often a lot easier if we can uh, just let the player um, use all the skills that they've learned while playing all the other games that they've played for a decade or more. Right, but at the same time though, I mean doesn't doesn't that I mean that would also sort of detract from hegemony's uniqueness, correct? Yeah, that's uh and that's something that uh when it came down to the small things, we might be more likely to adopt some of the um skills that they've learned in other games like uh, the controls are similar to most of the strategy games you've got left click to select right click to issue orders um, we had played around with doing different things but in the end it just wasn't worth it to uh, make the player learn something new but when it came to something like looking at your walls in a different way then that's something that we really felt was uh, something that was worth making the player learn something new now have you gotten pushback from your community on stuff like this? You know, the sort of questions where, well, why can't I build a super city that cranks out, you know, hordes of troops? You know, like a little bit of resistance to all the ways that hegemony sort of plays on and then confounds traditional expectations. In some ways, yeah, we do have some people who come on the forums and are like, well, can I mod the game to uh, give myself more troops than the game gives me? Um, and we had sort of added some new controls into the gold version, which allow you to tweak that stuff and the options with the uh, basic sentiment that if you do this, it probably won't turn out the way you want. Um, you probably won't enjoy it as much as you think you will if you just have tons of troops and you can kill everybody. Um, and generally, we find that... Uh, as people play with it, they generally realize that it's more fun the uh, the original way. You know, I had uh, lunch with uh, Jim McNally when I first got back to Toronto uh, earlier this year. We met for lunch, and he talked a bit about uh, the importance of the Penny Arcade space uh, you got at PAX uh, last year, and how that was a big help in promoting the game and getting it distributed. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, well, the... Um the big effect that had is it was basically anybody could apply to get into the PAX 10 and the PAX 10 is just this competition that tries to uh, showcase some unique independent games um, and one of the coolest moments while we were at the PAX 10 is Tycho of Penny Arcade had come up to us and he was like hey I just want to say I love your game yours is one of the games I voted for and the games I vote for never get picked but yours did um, and that really brightened our day. But That's awesome. the other thing that uh, that really helped us out at PAX was we were at the show and we were in our togas showing off the game. And somebody came up to us and she's like, uh, so where can I buy your game? And I'm like, well, you can buy it on um, on our site or on Direct Drive or on Impulse. And she's like, so why not on Steam? And I'm like, well... We've been trying to get their attention, but they really haven't been paying attention to us. And then she hands me your card, and it says, Anna Sweet Valve Corporation. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> why aren't we on Steam? Um, so that got us on Steam. Now we're sort of uh, we're having trouble with getting gold on Steam again, because those gates are in the way. But we're working on it. And at least we have some contacts now. Yeah, when I saw uh, that Tejemini was in the PAX 10, I was, like, thrilled, because uh, it's... Because it's a game that had gotten almost no coverage, uh, 
Um, you know, I've been slowly spreading the word bit by bit, word of mouth and IRC channels and email and the blog when I had a chance. Um, and it was just, it made my day to see a strategy game there. And second one, that's just so out there compared to, it requires some study, it requires some time. Um, it was just a, a, a beautiful moment for me to see it there because, you know, it's something I, I believe in, you know, evangelizing for these games. And it was, uh, I was very happy to see that. And yeah, you've been a big help because uh, marketing has always been one of our um, our worst points as far as our skill set. We like to make the games. We're not so good at selling them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that is a problem with a lot of competitions is right. uh, these games which are uh, really quick to pick up and really fun to play right away, but ultimately kind of shallow tend to win more. Obviously, some games, which do have a lot more depth, end up getting picked, and you get games like, you know, Minecraft or uh, uh, Amnesia. Those end up right. getting picked as well, and that's a good thing. But you also end up with a lot of other games, which are fun for half an hour, because that's all the reviewers played. Um, but after that, it just loses a lot of depth. You know, there, there's there's certain there certainly seems to be a lot of interest in the game space. You know, making sure that indie games get covered. But you know, we've we've talked a bit about this on the, on the show that there there's an indie style, there's an indie aesthetic, and I mean, really, you know, talk about confounding expectations. You know, Troy, does Hegemony look like an indie project? No, it looks it looks like a, it is something that is you could easily see it be a a a, a double A production from an established well, not that. Uh, Lomo Digital Arts is not established, but I mean, LDA was known, you know, and Our House is the guys who made that that, that, that breakout clone that my wife played for hours and hours and hours. Uh, I mean, that's what we knew Lomo Digital Arts as. Uh, and, and trust me, she played it to death. I mean, we loved it, loved it, loved it. And then this game kind of comes out of nowhere with, you know, if not triple A production values, at least double A production values, it looks as good as uh, many games from, you know, more established uh I mean, what's the indie aesthetic i mean i there's an indie aesthetic to it and that the the the, the choice of topic uh i think is an indie kind of topic but no it doesn't look like it, it this isn't blueberry garden what i can say all right this isn't you know fly the little crow man in the straw hat around while <laughs> twee piano music plays in the background mm-hmm. and that's that's what blueberry garden is and uh, i enjoyed blueberry garden for 10 minutes um, it I, was a fun game for ten minutes. Yep, but, yep. But. but not after that. Um, but no, I mean, I think you're, you have a point, Rob. And you look at you look at it, and I mean, this is, speaks to the quality of the artwork. I mean, you've excellent artists, uh, clearly, and you see it in action. And it's, I mean, I'm not sure how big uh, LDA is, how big its dev team is, but uh, we're still a tiny team. We just uh, upped to six people. Um, so we now have yeah. three artists. It's amazing. Yeah. See, yeah, that's just that's freaking crazy. Okay, I mean, so you just upped to six people. So Hegemony was made with three or four. Started with three, ended with five. Um, so yeah, that's that was always something we never wanted you, to how, use. That how as how a are you still sane? <laughs> um, well, between you and me, I'm not sure we are. Uh, that <laughs> probably helps a lot. Um, and we just, we absolutely love working on, uh, working on this game. That was something that, uh, before I had started working at Longbow, they had worked on 
a number of these casual games. Uh, DX Ball 2 did pretty well for itself, but then right. they started trying to push the boundaries with the casual games um, and make something like a Rivable Tournament, which was kind of a mix between Pong and Breakout. Um, yeah. And generally, the guys didn't enjoy making it as much, and the customers didn't enjoy playing it as much, so they had kind of decided that, um, well, it's, it's time to sort of break out and try to do something we really love. And, uh, and that's how we ended up working on Hegemony. And if we didn't love it as much as we did, then we wouldn't be willing to put in the number of hours that we do. So I, I'm, I'd be interested to hear a bit about like how, how, how you finance the project. I mean, did these earlier games sort of provide seed money? Uh, and I, I, know, I know, Troy, you mentioned that, you know, in many ways, the original Hegemony was kind of a, you know, halfway step toward what is really the complete experience in Hegemony Gold. Uh, so could you take us through a bit of the, uh, you know, basically the, the financing of it and then sort of the, the way the business model played out and evolved? Uh, well, as far as the financing goes, we did start out with some uh, cash from our earlier games, but a lot of it actually came from our lead designer, who has actually always been sort of part-time on the team. Um, the other part-time, he works as a physician. So he actually funds a lot of Longbow. Um, and uh, what we had done with Philip is uh, if we had known better, what we probably would have done is release the original Philip as a paid beta and then uh, done what Minecraft did and just improve it for a year afterwards. Um, because that did sort of help us fund the rest of the development. Um, but at the time, we had never known that that was an option. Um, so we had this game which we thought was fairly complete, but hadn't gotten a whole lot of testing, and we didn't have a whole lot of users to do a private beta. Um, so we really didn't have much option but to release it as it was. And after we did that, we started taking it on the convention tour and talking to all our users, and that gave us a whole lot of really good ideas on how we could improve it and make gold. I'm curious, so has Hegemony, has Hegemony been a big success for you? I mean, I, obviously, you know, Troy and I love it, but is, has that enthusiasm translated into uh, sales? It's still really niche. Um, and like I had said, uh, marketing has always been one of our weakest points. So we're always trying to reach a bigger audience. Um, and it's happening slowly, especially with gold. We've gotten a lot of uh, really good reviews recently. Um, and now we're uh, going into the new convention season of this year. So we just came back from Origins and about to head off to Gen Con and then New York Comic Con. So hopefully that'll spread some more uh, word about the game. So are you still are you still showing hegemony? When are you going to be able to uh, start showing off your new project? Can you talk a little bit about that now? Uh, well, we haven't officially announced our next project yet. I so want to share it with everybody because I've been uh, doing a lot of the researching and writing lately. And uh, I just, every day I've got something new I want to tweet, but I can't because we haven't announced it yet. Um, so at the conventions, we are going to be showing um, we'll be selling Hegemony Gold, because we've got that in a box copy now. Um, and probably at New York Comic Con, we'll start showing some of what we're working on for our uh, next game. But that's still pretty up in the air right now. All right, so that about covers everything I had. Uh, Troy, anything you wanted to bring up? Anything you want to touch on? Uh, no, uh, I really don't. I mean, so, so glad you could be here. And um, 
I wish I had copies to give away uh, to people because it really is uh, a really outstanding game. Um, something that I think every one of my listeners who think that you know strategy games are kind of have, think the RTS is stagnated uh, really really should try uh, hegemony because it shows that you know there I wrote a post today how much innovation there is in outside of the AAA strategy space uh, and I think hegemony is one is a classic example of that. Yeah, we can set that up for you. You want to have a little competition to uh, send a couple copies out to. Sure, so random winners. Random yeah, absolutely. Sure, I want to set that up. Uh, I guess if you want to win a copy of Hegemony, uh, post a comment in the comment thread for this podcast, which would be on flashofsteel.com. Uh, post a comment, and I guess then we'll choose a commenter randomly, I suppose. The best way to do it. That makes sense, Rob? Yeah, sounds two, good. Two. Two. We'll have two, 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 two impulse codes. Um, I can actually... Uh mail a physical copy of our CD version out now. That sounds like something we can do. Alright, yeah, so that about does it for us. I, you know, I will just say, it, it, the, I playing this game it reminded me of the first time I saw Shogun, uh, the demo for Shogun. I've, I, I, I haven't had sort of a... Re, I haven't been this sort of high and surprised by a strategy game probably since well, Shogun. Just following your Twitter feed, Rob, has been a complete delight to me because, <laughs> you know, seeing your comments like, aha, he's falling in love, and I can tell when he's falling in love because that's happened to me like three times in my life. So. Yeah, I mean, games like this don't come along very often, but uh, when they do, it's, it always heralds something exciting. That's why I'm so, I'm so eager to hear about this next project because these... these you know, moments like this are often sort of the start of something really exciting and interesting. They can, they can go in so many cool directions. Yes. Uh, so I guess we can wrap up here. Absolutely. So uh, that does it for our show. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. And Troy, of course, for uh, you know freeing up some of your Tuesday night to uh, join us. What else was I going to do? I'm not like I can drink anymore. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. You guys are great. Hegemony, Hegemony Gold is available at Gamers Gate. And Impulse, is it also available at Direct2Drive? Uh, yes, it's also on Direct2Drive, and you can also buy it directly from us. Absolutely. That's at so. There will be links to the bottom of the podcast. Yes, yep. And you were all strongly encouraged to buy it. I will admit, I'm a cheapskate. I held out for a sale. Uh, I only had to pay about you know, $13 for it, but my God, it's fantastic. And uh, it's something you should, if you have any, especially if you have any sort of interest in the period, if you're a bit of a classics nerd like me, and me. Uh, oh my god, this is this is the game you've been waiting for. All right. Good, good night, everyone. Note, good night. Night.